Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, New York City gears up for a big parade. NYC will have its first majority female city council. And a former top cop is double dipping to the tune of $430,000 per year. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. New York City will celebrate its pandemic heroes tomorrow with a ticker tape parade. Essential workers, nurses, doctors, first responders, delivery workers, and many others will march up Broadway through the Canyon of Heroes to City Hall. Here's Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's brimming with excitement have some breaking news about our hometown heroes parade now this is coming up wednesday we're going to honor the healthcare heroes the first responders the essential workers the members of the media everyone who was there for us during COVID and saw us through all are welcome to come and enjoy and see uh, the heroes that we'll be saluting it'll start at 11 a.m on wednesday july 7th and then there'll be a ceremony at city hall we're going to honor as grand marshal uh, nurse sandra Lindsay who was the first person in the United States vaccinated, and the host of the ceremony will be the anchor of Good Morning America, Robin. Meanwhile, Governor Andrew Cuomo is trying to one-up de Blasio by building a memorial to essential workers at Battery Park City. However, his plan has run into a buzzsaw of protests because it would tear up part of a popular park. We'll hear more about this monumental controversy after the headlines. The New York City Board of Elections is scheduled to release the latest results in the mayoral race today, but it's not saying when. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams currently holds a narrow lead over former Sanitation Commissioner Catherine Garcia, with former City Hall lawyer Maya Wiley trailing close behind Garcia. 126,000 absentee ballots are still up for grabs, and once the raw totals are known, the full pool of ballots will be tabulated via ranked choice preferences. The final results will not be certified until at least July 12th. On Friday night, the Board of Elections released preliminary ranked choice results in all 51 city council races, while several races are still too close to call with their absentee ballots yet to be counted, it's certain the city council will be majority female for the first time and that at least two Democratic Socialists, Tiffany Caban and Alexa Aviles, will serve on the next council. A third self-identified socialist, Kristen Richardson-Jordan, has pulled into a narrow lead for the District 9 seat that covers Central and East Harlem. That seat is currently held by incumbent Bill Perkins. This is Richardson-Jordan. Fist up. My name is Kristen Richardson-Jordan, and I set out to disrupt New York City Council District 9 with radical love. We have been building for over two years, and now we are on the cusp of winning the District 9 City Council seat up by 275 votes after ranked choice voting. I represent a true change in the Harlem political landscape, going up against the machine and winning. We'll talk more with Richardson Jordan later in the show. Last week, the outgoing city council passed its final budget in the de Blasio era. It's a $98.6 billion document that includes an additional $200 million in annual funding for the NYPD on top of the $6 billion it was already receiving. One cop who's living extra large these days is Terrence Monahan, the former chief of police. The New York Post reports today that the recently retired Monaghan is raking in a cool $430,000 per year, $188,000 from his pension, and another $242,000 from an appointment as a senior mayoral advisor. And in Florida, people are waiting for the landfall of Tropical Storm Elsa, the first named storm to come ashore this year in the continental United States. 
This is Elsa lashing Cuba yesterday as it passed over the island nation. We'll be back with more after this short break. Ce n'est pas bon by Amadou and Mariam. Welcome to the Independent News Hour in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org, I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. It's great to be back with you after last week's preemption. We have a really good show for you today. In our first segment, we look at how we remember the COVID 19 pandemic. Not that the pandemic is entirely over, but life is gradually returning to normal here in New York. Mayor Bill de Blasio is going to celebrate the occasion tomorrow by presiding over a ticker tape parade. It'll be for essential workers who helped get the city through the worst days of the pandemic. The parade is slated to begin at 11 a.m. and will head up Broadway through the Canyon of Heroes to City Hall. Not to be outdone, Governor Andrew Cuomo is trying to build a memorial to the essential workers over at nearby Battery Park City. But he's run into a buzzsaw of criticism since residents learned last week that the governor planned to tear up part of a popular park to build his memorial. Moms and their children camped overnight in the park to fend off bulldozers that were parked nearby. Social media lit up. Local politicians erupted. And for now, Cuomo has backed down to help make sense of what happened and how it connects to Cuomo's penchant for placing uh, monuments over at uh, Battery Park City, we're joined by Todd Fine. Todd is a Lower Manhattan preservationist and activist who has been following the situation closely. Todd, welcome to WBAI Radio. Hi. Hi, John. How are you? Uh, doing great. So for our listeners, first of all, can you walk us through uh, what happened over at Battery Park City at the beginning of last week, uh, starting uh, with this uh, almost a decree-like announcement from the governor that he was going to tear up part of the park to build a monument? Yes. Yeah, so on, on June 23rd, uh, the governor released, the governor's office released a series of images of this memorial uh, that was planned right in the middle of an active uh, park, Rockefeller Park on the northern part of Battery Park City. Uh, there was no notice. There was no uh, community input. And pretty soon uh, after the announcements, Parents, locals started organizing. They 
They created WhatsApp groups and a Twitter hashtag and a campaign. And it was, I guess, a very organic uh, development. They had a petition with 7,000 uh, 7, signers, and they started camping out. They put signs on all the trees uh, in that area, and it eventually led basically for the governor to to back down and say that he wants to he's willing to move it to a different location P- probably and, and, still and you think yeah he and the reason the governor backed down was just the bad optics of uh having all these children and their moms uh park uh parked in front of his bulldozers i think so i think they didn't want a confrontation certainly um they probably also didn't uh you know want to to have the Battery Park City Authority really antagonize the residents there as much as it was happening. I see. And, and, and where do things stand now? Well, there, uh, it looks like they're going to try to keep it in Battery Park City. So Battery Park City for people who don't know is sort of a special zone in New York City because it's controlled by a public corporation that that is controlled basically by the government and doesn't have any city input. So Cuomo has treated Battery Park City as a place where he can sort of unilaterally make decisions about land use and about the placement of memorials. Uh, So they may try to find another place in Battery Park City, but it's very likely that they will uh, encounter the same opposition uh, because people will object to that location for other reasons. Right. And, and the governor has already placed two memorials in Battery Park City within the past year. Is that correct? Yes, it's it's remarkable. There's there's a, a memorial for Hurricane Maria, which, of course, occurred in Puerto Rico, not in Manhattan. But there is a memorial for that in Battery Park City. And there's a memorial for uh, Mother Cabrini, uh, which notably became a, a fight between the governor and the mayor when uh, the mayor's monument uh, commission program to honor women excluded uh, the Italian saint, even though she had received the most nomination from the public. And the governor uh, turned around and did a memorial in less than one year. Mm. And uh, I remember looking at the um, the the website for the uh, memorial to the victims of Hurricane uh, Maria uh, the other night, and I was struck by how much it seemed to be a memorial to Governor Cuomo and his uh, e- efforts on behalf of Puerto Rico after that storm. Yeah, I I think nobody can say that this that uh, Governor Cuomo is bad at putting his name on anything that he builds or is responsible for, and it, it, both in the case of Hurricane Maria. And in the case of uh, the the planned memorial for uh, the essential workers, uh, Governor Cuomo's name was certainly uh, quite prominent in the plaque that was released to the public. And uh, what, what do you think is the larger reason that uh, Cuomo, um, you know, has uh, wanted to place this essential workers memorial um, over in Battery Park City? I mean, we. As you pointed out, Battery Park City is sort of the ideal place for him to kind of operate on his own. But why does he want this so badly? Well, you know, this this is one of these things where we we might want to be cynical and say, oh, Cuomo is just uh, trying to get a photo op and he's just trying to to show that he's a great uh, champion of the essential workers. That would be the cynical interpretation. The less more charitable would be that. 
you know, we have the the city went and the state went through COVID-19 and there he had a lot of union leaders who he had, he had put on a commission to to uh, honor the essential workers. And so they feel like some, you know, some recognition needs to take place. I think the larger critique, though, is that is do the essential workers need a monument or do they need things like affordable housing and uh, and other benefits? And I think that's that's the real question here. Mm. And, and uh, I think you have a, an idea in mind for where where they might uh, get some affordable housing uh, with the uh, an assist from the governor if he was so willing. Yeah, right. Right next to uh, the port uh, to Battery Park City is uh, the World Trade Center, which has a site five World Trade Center that's up for grabs and activists for. Over uh, 10 years now have been advocating that it be a fully affordable, 100% affordable building. But yet the the current plan proposed by uh, the governor and the city is to make it a luxury uh, tower run by Silverstein and Brookfield uh, properties. Well, that doesn't seem like that's going to work out to the um, benefit of many essential workers. I don't think so. But there there are people working on that. and And I think maybe that's one of the greatest uh, developments from this little spat in Battery Park City is that it shows that activism can work um, if people come together. So just as Battery Park City moms and dads fought uh, to stop this memorial in their park, maybe we can advocate for more affordable housing at the World Trade Center. Right. And and just one other thought on the, on the successful activism around that park, which is, it's always good to see, you know, when people are able to uh, rally in, in defense of, of their community like that. Of course, uh, the people who live over there are, are, are mostly white, mostly middle or upper middle class. And, um, you know, it's, it, I, I think um, we can also uh, wonder or, or hope that, uh, that uh, politicians would be more responsive in the future to, to other communities that maybe don't have the same amount of, uh, uh, social capital is the the people at Battery Park City. They certainly showed how you can leverage uh, your power. But uh, what what can we? Uh, I guess um, we'll we'll have to see if uh, the city government go, go, and state government going forward will be more responsive to other less uh, less advantaged communities. Absolutely. And if there's one lesson, it's that bring cute kids <laughs> to your protest. In, indeed. All right. Well, Todd Fine, uh, Lower Manhattan preservationist and activist, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you, John. You bet. When we come back after this short break, we're going to talk with a city council candidate who is on the verge of uh, winning the seat in Harlem, self-identified socialist, feminist, queer, uh, and uh, running on a platform of radical love. We look forward to talking to uh, Kristen Richardson-Jordan in just a moment. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. It takes paradise. Put up a parking lot. Ooh, ba, 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 ba. Ooh, ba, 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 ba. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum. And they charged the 
that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise with up a parking lot. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. The pay paradise, put up a parking lot. That was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Before we uh, go to our next guest, just want to encourage everybody who can do so to support WBAI. Phone number is 212-209-2950. It's the support of listeners like you that make community radio possible across New York City. Our signal beams uh, more than 100 miles in all directions from New York. This is an absolutely unique radio station. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. You can also go to give number 2 wbaiorg You can make a one-time donation, or you can sign up for as little as $10 a month to become a WBAI buddy. Also, I just want to say uh, today is the last day in the Pacifica bylaws elections. Um, if you are a, a WBAI member, if you've given $25 or more in the past year or, or done volunteer work at the station, uh, you should be eligible to vote in the election should have received a ballot from Pacifica. Uh, I can't say on the air how you should vote, but this is a very important election for the future of WBAI and the Pacifica network. So if you are still, if you are able to vote in this election, but have not done so tonight, 1159 PM is the deadline for sending in your electronic ballot. All right. So we're going to move on to our second segment on Friday night, the Board of Elections released more results in city council races, all, in all 51 city council races, where they did preliminary tabulations of ranked choice voting. And among other things, for the first time, New York City Council will be majority female. Also, uh, we had two Democratic Socialists uh, win in Astoria and Sunset Park, T- Tiffany Caban and Alexa Aviles. Another self-identified socialist uh, jumped into the lead in Harlem in District 9, and that's our next guest, uh, Kristen Richardson-Jordan. Kristen, thank you for joining us on WBAI 99.5 FM. Hi. uh, Thank you for having me on. Glad to be here. Sure thing. Uh, So uh, for for starters, uh, how does it feel to be leading in this race you're you're one of 15 candidates and you're now in in first place and also why do you think uh, harlem voters have I- embraced your candidacy yeah it's uh, it's all very exciting over here because uh a lot of a lot of those who were more well connected and or part of the status quo and and sort of political elites in harlem really dismissed our campaign as a impossibility so it is a close election. We, you know, we don't want to um, count the chickens before they hatch, but, but, um, but it's super exciting and definitely a victory all around. Whatever happens, definitely a victory to be two hundred and seventy-five votes up and to be leading in a race where where uh, 
people, like I said, really dismissed uh, the possibility of this type of, of candidacy. Uh, and I think the reason why Harlem has responded so well is because Harlem is ready. Uh, Harlem is looking for change. And um, uh, we we see all the effects of status quo in, in our neighborhood and in our district. You know, the, the over-policing that takes place in parts of New York City is, is uh, rampant in District 9. Um, the economic inequality is apparent in District 9. We have 22 NYCHA buildings in district. Uh, the, the need for a radical voice and uh, some really, truly radical uh, policy that flip this system on its head are uh, is just apparent. And I think the reason why Harlemites responded so well is because we really built a grassroots movement with Harlemites. And that's what I'm so proud of with this campaign. It wasn't it wasn't just me, changes never one person. It was a really strong grassroots effort to talk to our neighbors, talk to our friends, talk to family, and uh, really mobilize for change in Harlem. And it's, you know, like I said, it's time. It's it's beyond time. And, and can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? You've had an unconventional uh, background for uh, someone that's uh, on the verge of being elected to city council. Yeah, definitely. My background is as an organizer and activist. Um, I'm a teaching artist. I, uh, I'm a published poet. And I, um, um, I identify as all those things. But first and foremost, and, and more than anything, I'm an organizer. And that um, that background of being uh, mostly typically the one outside the system raging at the system, um, it's, it's a definite shift. Um, and it does make me, make me a non-traditional candidate, but I think it also makes me very relatable to, you know, my fellow Harlemites because a lot of us have been kept out of places and positions of political power for a very long time. And, um, you know, just to be perfectly honest and, and not parse words, a lot of those who have been elected um, have placated powers that be and, um and and sort of we we have a tradition where it's like you get elected and you and yours are on the come up and everyone else is right where they are. So my background as a, a organizer and really focusing on people power is is very different. Um, and um, it's almost like the election was a protest. The election was a mass movement uh, b- because uh, we haven't seen. Uh, I've never seen a rep like me for my community. Um, There's plenty of that energy. There's plenty of that history. Harlem has a beautiful history of just Black liberation and and freedom movement. I mean, we have a history of of Black Panther offices here, which are, you know, Black Democrats. Democratic socialists. We have, we have um, Ella Baker and all the work she did in, in Harlem. We have a lot of of um, beautiful art, um, black revolutionary art. Right? You think of Harlem, you think of Harlem Renaissance. You could think of a lot of of um, that black arts movement, which was tied to black freedom and black liberation movement. Right, and the um, Schomburg so- Center. Yeah, absolutely. The Schomburg Center, um, it, it shows us that. It embodies that. 
Um, so that is Harlem too. We just haven't seen it on an electoral. Uh, we haven't seen it so much in an electoral space, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and what made you decide to uh, jump from fighting on the outside to uh, fighting on the inside? Well, a couple of things. Uh, the first is I have to say I was definitely inspired by the new Congress. Uh, so the elections of the squad with Ilhan Omar and AOC and Rashid Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, uh, just seeing these, these, uh, women of color just speaking truth to power, uh, running races and winning. It's, it's something that I just continuously go back to as, as, um, it opened up my political imagination. Uh, to the possibility of being exactly who I am and standing for exactly what I stand for and running for office. Um, and I hadn't really considered putting those pieces together before in that way. Um, so that was part of it. The other part of it is that in Harlem, we're, we're in desperate need of service. Uh, we are really, really in need of service. And when I talk about disrupting the district with radical love, I know the word radical makes folks a little nervous. Uh, but makes the, some of us <laughs> excited. <laughs> he said it makes some excited. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, radical means getting at the root of things, right? That's that's what it means. So it means getting at the root of systemic oppression and systemic problems and rooting it up and turning over white supremacy and, and turning over capitalism. And, you know, really, what do we do to create new systems? Um, because they're desperately needed. And the love piece is all about service. And um, my district is very in need of, of services, of um just basic equity. I mean, really basic equity. I mean, we, the environmental racism has affected Harlem. Uh, we actually, you know, see that we have higher asthma rates due to old housing stock and the lack of upkeep of, of NYCHA buildings and also non-NYCHA buildings. And then we actually receive, um, just, uh, we have less trash cans. We receive less trash pickups and all of that factors into sanitation. Uh, we look at education, the two-tier education system in New York. We see the effects of that on, in Harlem with the, the quality of our schools um, and the, the ability, or I should say inability, to really uh, hone in and hire teachers who are from and reflect our community as well. So there's, I mean, that's just a couple highlights. There's there's plenty, um, but our current city councilman, uh, who I ran against, um, right? I'm an I'm an insurgent candidate. This was an insurgent campaign. Uh, the incumbent voted for the De Blasio's plan for new jails and basically voted for an expansion of our prison industrial complex to a district that is already over policed. Mm. And, and uh, to what extent did the Legacy of the Black Panthers and the Young Lords inspire you. I understand that's part of uh, your political huge. vision. Oh, yes, hugely. Uh, absolutely, absolutely inspired by that. Um, actually, one of my very first endorsements uh, very early on in the campaign uh, was from a man named Tyreek Scarlett, who is a former Black Panther. Not that you ever stop being one. Um, and it's one of the... Uh, it's one of the supporters I'm most honored to have because that is that I do see my part as uh, I do see 
me as being a part of a larger Black freedom fighting movement, uh, Black radical tradition that really um, that really centers uh, our people and, and through that, the liberation of all people. Um, and that really gets at how do we fight white supremacy and capitalism um, at, at the same time, you know, and I, I, um, yeah, I'm just, I, I, I'm very much, it, I'm very much connected to that history and those movements. I, um, um, I love, you mentioned the Schomburg. I love the Schomburg. Um, my great aunt actually was an original tenant at Lenox Terrace and she did a lot of work in Harlem and she even donated some of, um, some of her papers are at the Schomburg Center. And I did a double major when I went away to school in Black studies and literary arts. Um, at Brown University, Black Studies is called Africana Studies. Right. Uh, so really, um, yeah, I've, I've really read a lot, seen a lot, and also grew up with a lot. And, you know, I just, um, I absolutely connected to those movements. Great. And uh, we just have a few more minutes here. So there's a few more questions I want to uh, try to get in. And one of them is, um, I mean, you talked about how, Traditionally, uh, politicians get elected to a place like city council and they sort of become absorbed in it. Um, how do you plan to balance being a, an a, essentially a sort of an agitator from the outside with being effective from the inside so that you can bring, you know, services and other things that your, your district needs? Because once you're in an institution like the city council, I mean, you have to manage relationships with other members and the speaker and, um, all those kind of things, and uh, um, how do you how do you envision uh, striking that balance? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is I I actually welcome the tension because I think that's I think that's part of how we have growth, um, and I actually I don't I don't want to ever uh, downplay the role of agitation because even as a city councilwoman. I want people to hold me accountable. I want people to um, call my office and, and, you know, write my office and, and lobby and if needed protest, because um, that's something that, that that's just part of, of people power. And it's just part of what, what will actually move us towards the world we need to be at. Um, I think the way to make change is with movements. So that's very different from a traditional politician. I don't see my role as, uh, I, I don't see my role as being like the one to um, bring the change for the whole community. I see my role as being a part of it, but it needs to be larger, much larger than me. So if we're going to fight for budget justice, that's not just me bringing a certain piece of legislation to the floor, although I, I'll definitely, I can definitely do that. Or if it's us um, looking at the city budget and needing to vote down a city budget that's going to add money to NYPD, I can, I can certainly lend my voice to that. And I will whip up the votes that I can among my colleagues. But we also need a larger movement going on on the outside where people are demonstrating and calling their city council members as well. And, um, and that's sort of what I see in general as the way to make change, like with movements, with organizing, uh, not me as a lone person 
uh, elected in the city council. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's the old school way of making change, like the backdoor deals and the, you got the hookup with who's who and, you know, uh, enough of that. That's <laughs> not even democratic. Right. And uh, we just have another uh, minute or so here. I um, want to ask you two more things. Um, you've been on a listening tour in your in your uh, neighborhood, I, I believe, over the last uh, week or so, uh, um, meeting in, in public at, at different uh, venues uh, in, in your district. Uh, can you summarize real quickly how that's been going and if that's something you intend to uh, continue to do if if, um, if you are on city council next year? And then, and where, and where did things stand with the, the absentee votes? Like, is there anything more, more people should know about that? Um, how that process is unfolding? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the listening tour because this is, this was one of my brain babies. And it was really this idea that, you know, we, we were talking about, uh, um, me and my team were talking about the, the, a hypothetical next step, right? Assuming it works out and I am elected, uh, what would I want to do with my first 100 days? And it occurred to me that, you know, instead of doing the traditional thing of, well, here's just my plans, it it makes way more sense to do it organizer style and grassroots style, which is, is it's literally how, um, if we win, it's literally going to be how we won, Um and, and do a listening tour. So the feedback that people are giving right now is informing what we're putting together for the first 100 days and what I want to roll out in my first 100 days in office um, and beyond. But I'm, I'm concentrating specifically on that. It's a lot of feedback around housing, which we knew was a huge issue in Harlem because of the gentrification and because of of the lack of regulating um, some of the current developments. So um, that's definitely come up um, issues around uh, community board and community board membership um, have come up. Uh, senior care has been an ongoing um, issue. We, and we have activities. 20 seconds. Oh, okay. And I was going to say more activities for the kids um, in terms of absentees. We're just waiting to see what happens with with those, um, we are cautiously optimistic uh, that with ranked choice voting, uh, we will still be in the lead after the absentee count. Um, thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Kristen Richardson Jordan, candidate for city council seat in uh, District Nine, leading in that race, uh, waiting for the final uh, absentee votes to come in. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. We'll be back. Uh, after this short break, and uh, just as we uh, spoke with Kristen at the end, near the end of her uh, journey as a candidate, uh, our next guest uh, began her journey today uh, to uh, to run for Congress over New Jersey to represent uh, the greater Newark area. And when we come back after this short break, we'll talk with Imani Oakley. Your love is like the ocean, and I am like the sand. Responding to your power, a safe place for you to stand. But when the undercurrents come, 
That was Love by Lauren Hill. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of Independent. Uh, before we move on to our second, I want to encourage listeners who do so to generously support this station. You, you can call 212-209-2950. It's you, our listeners, that keep community radio beaming here in New York. Again, that number is 212-209-2950, or you can go to the WBAI, or you can go to give number two, WBAI.org. And when you go there, you can make a one-time donation, or you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month, get all sorts of great benefits, and help support this station. Alrighty, so moving into our next segment, um, Imani Oakley has witnessed the machinations of the New York of the New Jersey Democratic Party machine from inside as a young legislative staffer, and she fought it from the outside as a policy director for the New Jersey Working Families Party. Earlier today, Oakley announced she is running for Congress in New Jersey's 10th congressional district, which encompasses uh, Newark, just over on the other side of the Hudson River. And the primary won't be until next June, but running for Congress is a big undertaking. And Oakley in her race is taking on one of the New Jersey machine's dynastic heirs, Donald Payne Jr., who inherited the seat from his father in 2002. We're going to find out more about why she's uh, running and what she hopes to accomplish if she reaches Congress. Imani, thank you for joining us uh, this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Right. So uh, uh, how does it feel to to make it official today and, and, and be in this race for Congress that you're going to be running for the next 11 months? No, it feels really, really good. I mean, the energy today was incredible. I had, you know, family members supporting, friends, um, old classmates I haven't seen, you know, since high school supporting. I actually had, I spoke to uh, one of my middle school teachers today who was just, my middle school math teacher was ecstatic um, that I'm doing this. So the energy was amazing. The progressive community really, really was supportive. and, And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about this. And, and why are you running? Why why do you think that the 10th district uh, needs new representation? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a person that truly, truly believes that if we are going to fix the problems in this country, we are going to have to commit extremely to our values and become active fighters against unjust systems in all forms. And in my opinion, um, entering the halls of government is a great way to do that because governments can take long lasting and permanent actions that lead to sustained change. And listen, you know, I've experienced a lifetime of the stress 
that comes with fighting uh, these pervasive systems like racism and, and capitalism and sexism. And I, I really became intimately acquainted with what it feels like to fight against relentless power when I decided to take on New Jersey's corrupt political machine. And so, you know, when you take on a political machine like that, um, you get isolated, you get painted in a poor light. And through this, however, I've always been able to find the strength and the fuel needed to keep fighting for what I knew was right in all of those situations and for the people that I knew who were being left behind. Because in New Jersey specifically, we have all been left behind by corrupt party bosses who have literally manufactured a democracy. Um, and we can talk more about New Jersey's ballot design, you know, hopefully if we get to that in the program. But they've literally manufactured a democracy in which they always win. And the people of our communities, people who are working class, people of color, marginalized communities, perpetually lose to corporate interests, to greedy developers, to ICE agents, and so many other ills that are empowered by these party bosses. And again, in New Jersey, we have been stripped of our right of a true democracy. And through that, we've been stripped of our power by these self-interested politicians who merely see our communities as these financial and political playgrounds. And they are infinitely much, much more than that. And so, you know, I'm hoping to come bring the progressive coalition together in New Jersey and fight against these corrupt politicians and their Tammany Hall style of politics. Um, and I'm looking forward to winning in June. And, and you're running on a platform uh, that emphasizes uh, things like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, or reducing the military budget. Uh, why do you think that would be popular when a lot of people say, oh, um, uh, more Democratic voters want uh, a moderate candidate and especially uh, black voters in a district like yours. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, one of my major gripes when I was a political organizer was how much people misunderstand the black vote. Black voters, we vote for survival. Um, and sometimes survival may appear one way um, when it's actually another. You know, for example, sometimes survival may look like holding back a little bit and saying like, oh, well, you know, maybe we can't have that policy. Um, sometimes survival can appear that way. But I think we're entering a new generation of Black voter, um, as well as, you know, some older Black voters. You know, my mom was a Bernie supporter. <laughs> I have aunts who are older in their 70s who are Bernie supporters who, you know, were really tired of just voting to survive. And we are really looking to vote to thrive so that our communities can thrive, so that we can, our families can thrive, that we can thrive as individuals. Um, I think that that is a bit of a um, kind of, uh, I think it's wrong that Black voters kind of are, are more conservative. I, I really don't think that. I think it's more about convincing Black voters that they are safe and that you are somebody who will fight for their interests and will fight for their survival. And now we're moving to an era where we want a little bit more than that. We want somebody who will fight so that we can, uh, so we can actually flourish. And so I, I disagree wholeheartedly with anybody who would say that, you know, black voters aren't ready for progressive ideals because, you know, black voters are certainly ready to have the lead removed from their waters. Um, black voters are certainly ready 
to stop having their homes foreclosed on uh, by greedy banks and lenders. Uh, Black voters are certainly ready to stop seeing people picked up and uh, detained and deported by ICE agents. Black folks are ready for all of these things. And for those who say that we're not, you know, I I wonder how many Black people they actually interact with on a daily basis. I, w- I would love to do that study. So, so we are certainly ready for those types of policies. And those are the types of policies that I'll bring once I'm elected. And tell us about your opponent and, and why you think uh, five terms is a, enough for him. Yeah, so five terms, which equals out to a decade. Um, he really has done nothing but keep the seat warm. He has inherited his seat from his father. And for one, we should not have. This is Donald Payne Jr.? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Um, And he inherited his seat from his father, which, again, political dynasties, we should not be having those. Nobody should have a seat. This isn't feudal Europe. No one should have a seat simply because a family member of theirs had it. Um, Sat there for 10 years and, you know, just kept the seat warm. Um, Introduced three bills one of which was to rename a post office. Um, And even before he became a congressman, as a county commissioner, he was one of the original uh, politicians here in New Jersey to bring ICE contracts to New Jersey. And since getting in that congressional seat really has done nothing to fight back against the horrors of ICE happening in this country, which is really, really grossly offensive. Um, Another thing that I find really, really particularly offensive, especially in a district like this, that really is a a minority majority uh, district, is that when you are somebody who sits on the Homeland Security Committee, that is a committee that is going to be instrumental in fighting back against white supremacist violence in this country. For somebody to show up to that committee in their boxers, literally climbing out of bed, is a slap in the face for people in this country whose lives have literally been threatened by white supremacist violence since their birth. And for him to have a district that has a majority of people who fall into that category, you know, a congressman like that just does not need to be in office. And this district deserves a true fighter, which I think that's me. Um, Again, I have worked extensively in the political space in New Jersey. I've worked on the federal level. I've worked in the state legislature. I've worked on the grassroots level. Um, I've seen New Jersey politics from every single angle, and I know how to fight the hard fights, and I suspect that the voters will see that and vote me in in June. And, and just to clarify for our listeners, uh, when you reference uh, the congressman uh, uh, wandering around in his boxers, that happened last month, uh, as you said, during a committee hearing where uh, I guess he didn't realize he had uh, his Zoom uh, video function on and as uh, as you noted, he um, all of a sudden was uh, spotted in one of the boxes on the on the Zoom uh, uh, screen, uh, uh, climbing out of bed in his boxers with a in a Captain America T-shirt, and you, you can see sort of the astonished look on uh, some of the faces of his fellow committee members uh, who who weren't expecting that. Um, and uh, speaking of of Congress people, can you talk about the uh, the squad and and any inspiration they've provided for you and whether uh, that's a group uh, you would want to team up with if, if you were elected to Congress? Oh yeah. That, that entire group is an inspiration. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they really kind of, uh, you know, they're trailblazers on these type of insurgent campaigns. Um, AOC was, is a person I 
still admire to this day, but certainly when she first won, she was the person who made me realize that like, okay, me as a young leftist woman of color, I can actually do this. Um, so I have great, great admiration for AOC. I have great admiration for Cori Bush, who really, there's so many parallels between the race that I'm running and the race that she ran um, against Lacey Clay. And so, you know, I, I have great respect for her and what she did. Um, I have great, great respect for Rashida and Ilhan, who uh, really, really speak truth to power when it comes to issues surrounding Palestine. And that's something I greatly, greatly respect because as a Black American, you know, seeing, I really sympathize with the Palestinian people because I see the horrors that they're being subjected to with regards to over uh, militarization of, you know, both the actual military as well as police forces over there. Um, and it's time that we have voices in Congress like Rashida, like Ilhan, and like hopefully myself, who will really speak out against uh, the human rights abuses that are happening there. And so again, you know, the entire squad is really, and, and Jamal Bowman, he's also great. You know, I really love what he's doing around combating um, standardized testing. We absolutely need to get rid of those things. Um, it's just a, just really a test about how much your parents can afford to pay for test prep, uh, not a, any real measurement of your ability as a student. And so, yeah, the squad is a great, great inspiration to me, and I definitely look forward to working with them once I'm elected. And uh, can you t- tell our listeners a little bit about the Movement School? That's a, uh, a place that you've been involved with uh, in recent times, and uh, I, I understand it's, uh, I guess, helped prepare you for, for some of the nuts and bolts of uh, running a grassroots campaign. Yeah, yeah. No, Movement School is a beautiful, beautiful place. I wish it was like my high school. Um, uh, So first I was a fellow. Um, I was a 2019 fellow during the summer 19 cohort where, and the overall uh, mission of Movement School is to take folks from marginalized backgrounds and teach them how to run progressive insurgent campaigns. Um, and the training is completely free because, again, we're looking to train folks from marginalized backgrounds, which typically means a lot. Of, we get a lot of working class folks, people who were not born into wealth or have an accumulated wealth, et cetera. Um, and they teach them how to run campaigns. And so first I was a fellow, which, you know, I was on the comms track. So that definitely prepared me uh, for some communication stuff. And then later I became the first dean of movement building there. I actually worked there which was really, really fulfilling because I got- We have about 30 more seconds. Oh, okay, no problem. I got to see, um, you know, students who had gone through the same training that I did, and it was just beautiful to see. But ultimately, the training is so top-notch. I I definitely think it's something that has prepared me for this run today. Great. And and real quick, um, do you want to let our listeners know where they can uh, uh, follow you and, and find out more information about your campaign as it unfolds? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to our website, Oakley for that's f o r congress.com so oakleyforcongress.com or you can follow us on all social media on our handles at imani oakley nj10 again that's at imani oakley nj10 and when you go there please 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 if you can make a donation because we okay. have to raise money right Alrighty. Well, uh, Imani Oakley launching her grassroots campaign for Congress uh, over in Newark today. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI this evening. Thank you so much. You have a great night.
You too. Also, uh, listeners can find a, a more in-depth interview with uh, Imani at independent.org. It uh, went up uh, earlier today as well. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, again, that number for giving to WBAI, 212-209-2950. And thank you to Amba Gagarian for helping produce the show. And um, we'll see you next week. 